0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Another raid on journalists, this time in Malaysia.
2: There is definitely a pattern rather indicative of a deliberate and concerted effort by the state at silencing voices, especially uh, media, human rights defenders who are critical or dissenting or presenting an image of the government's action in an adverse light.
1: More questions about the media's right to hold government to account later. Hello, welcome to The Law Report. Damien Carrick with you. First, though, one in four Victorians supposed to be self-isolating for COVID-19 were found to not be at home when authorities conducted house calls last week. In response, the state government has dramatically upped the fines for flouting quarantine, But is there a more effective way to monitor those who should be self-isolating? Starting today, Tuesday, Singapore will allow some new arrivals to wear an electronic bracelet instead of quarantining in a state-run facility.
2: Hi, I'm Inspector Fiona from the Immigration and Checkpoints Authority. If you have been issued with a stay-home notice, also known as the S-H-N, here is what you need to know.
0: Singapore is about to have people serving stay-at-home notices outside of government facilities for the first time whilst they are wearing an electronically monitored device.
1: Dr Marietta Martinovic is a senior lecturer in criminology and justice at RMIT. She's an expert in electronic bracelets. Travellers to Singapore serving stay-home notices outside of government facilities will have to wear an electronic monitoring device. This will be from the the 11th of August, and this option will be available for citizens and residents from a select group of countries who are entering the country. And they will isolate at home rather than at a state-appointed facility. How will this device work?
0: So basically electronic monitoring devices are either worn worn on a wrist or uh, an anklet, in this case it will be the wrist, And these will basically monitor whether a person is within the confines of their home. And this is for everybody up from the age of 12. Throughout the 14-day stay-home notice, the wearer will need to acknowledge notifications on their phones linked to the device. Any attempt to leave the residence or tamper with the device will trigger an alert,
1: unless it is for a COVID-19 test. So any attempt to either leave home or to tamper with the device will trigger an alert to the authorities.
0: That's exactly right. And some countries have gone as far as saying that if that does happen, then a person goes straight to prison.
1: And I believe there are um, penalties along those lines under the new Singapore system. That's correct.
2: Thank you for your attention. Stay safe and healthy. Together, let's do our part in the fight against COVID-19.
1: So in Singapore, this isn't a punitive measure. It's not imposed on people who have a track record of non-compliance. Have other countries adopted anything similar?
0: Absolutely. Um, So, countries like China and Hong Kong were, in fact, the first users of the similar technology, where people were very stringently monitored. But at the same time, whilst people couldn't leave their homes, say in the city of Wuhan, for more than two months, they actually had provisions in place for people to receive their medication, daily you know, needs for uh, food, necessities, etc. So in other words, that was externally provided, but it was provided to people within their homes. So it was absolute 100% confinement.
1: And that that was policed using these electronic bracelets? Correct. So in Hong Kong and in China, as far as we know, there was this electronic monitoring uh, coupled together with service provision? Correct. And I've seen reports out of South Korea that they have used these sorts of uh, electronic bracelets or, or anklets for people who have violated quarantine. So as actually, in a different, sense as a punishment
0: yes exactly right and this may well be something that could be considered even in australia down the track because of the numbers um, that you have talked about you know 25 percent of people not complying with orders but those numbers have come down a little bit like you said subsequently but still nevertheless this is a very serious health issue and we have to get people to care And one way of getting people to care is, of course, by imposing financial penalties, which has been the case already in Victoria, as an example, but also thinking about what could be some more stringent measures and electronic monitoring is certainly an option. It's better than prison, that's for sure.
1: And what do we know about uh, South Korea, which would appear to have adopted this as a, a punitive measure against people who have been violating quarantine?
0: Look, what we know overall about people who wear electronic monitoring for punitive purposes, kind of worldwide data over the last 20 years, is that whilst people wear these devices, they are much more likely to be compliant. And this this is kind of worldwide data that talks about people kind of being very much aware that there is somebody watching and that somebody will find out if they do the wrong thing. So, yes, it does seem to have a positive effect on people's behaviour.
1: Marietta Martinovich, do we know at any given point in time how many low security offenders around Australia might be wearing an electronic bracelet so they can serve their time at home as opposed to in a prison?
0: Um, So at any time, about 1,500 to 2,000 people across Australia are on this technology. And you are right that some are lower risk, but there are some that are quite high risk. So there might be people on parole or extended supervision orders.
1: I see. So it's not just for, you know, home detention as an alternative to uh, prison. Not
0: anymore.
1: It's also for serious offenders who we want to keep tabs on and we're letting them out into the community on a provisional parole basis or, or indeed on an extended supervision order if they are deemed extremely dangerous.
0: Exactly right. There's been a lot more, I suppose, comfort in the use of electronic devices to track offenders And this is probably, you know, throughout Australia. So all jurisdictions now use it and are very comfortable with the technology. They also use it to cross-reference, if you like, places of criminal activity and where the wearers of these devices have been. And it's certainly a possibility that we will go down this track ourselves if the numbers don't improve.
1: Well, indeed, earlier this year, the the WA state government provided WA police force with with $3 million to buy 200 GPS-enabled electronic monitoring devices, and the WA parliament at the same time also passed laws to enable the use of these electronic bracelets or anklets to monitor those who flout quarantine. But it has been confirmed to the law report by WA Police that so far they haven't had to use these devices uh, where there have been breaches. um, Other enforcement responses have been used.
0: Uh, Yes, I have seen the same reports um, that you are talking about. And yes, while somewhat surprising, I think what really needs to be put in place is we've got to make sure that if people are detained to their homes that we, at the same time, make sure that there are provisions for people's medications and necessities that are also provided to them.
1: Might it work, maybe in Victoria, with those who are required to self-isolate and have not been at home when police have conducted a check, what would be the pros and cons of requiring people to wear an electronic bracelet?
0: Some of the pros would probably be that we could be kind of more... I suppose, secure that people will do the right thing. So that's certainly a positive. A negative is the whole issue of cost. But look, in all honesty, we have never um, applied this kind of technology on such a health situation. So we don't actually know how this would pan out. That's the truth. Mm. And I think that there could be backlash by people who are, mandated to use the technology. That's also a possibility.
1: We're talking here about using it on people who perhaps have not uh, complied with quarantine requirements as opposed to more broadly. I mean, it's, it's about Correct. imposing this uh, where there has been a breach of trust.
0: Look, exactly right. And it could be that those people would not be pleased by wearing them and would kind of want to destroy them, would want to tamper with them, etc. But these are expensive devices. They are not cheap. And then, of course, there's all the manpower behind it all. You know, there's somebody that's got to be tracking people. When an alert happens, there's got to be a very strict process. What happens? How do we or how do the authorities then respond to those alerts? There's quite a lot that needs to go on in the background. So the process of monitoring is quite substantial.
1: In Australia, of course, there's currently a, a big conversation about making sure that prisons are not... Overcrowded because you know it's, it's very hard to say socially distance in prisons. Has there been any expansion of the use of electronic bracelets for, if you like, the offender population to reduce the overcrowding of prisons?
0: Look, to my extent, um, my knowledge extent, it there hasn't yet. Um, although I know that governments are always thinking about what happens if, but at the moment, the only thing. As far as I'm aware, what has happened is that numbers of people in custody have dropped quite significantly. Um, so we're looking at less than, say, 7,000 people um, in prisons in Victoria today, from and we were at almost 8,500 about 12 months ago. So the numbers of people in custody have certainly dropped.
1: So that's an interesting development, which we can presumably connect it to COVID-19, I'm wondering, I know you're a criminologist as opposed to a health expert, but how practical and how helpful is wearing an electronic bracelet as a health measure? I mean, it wouldn't, for instance, stop people from visiting you at home. It wouldn't stop your family members or housemates from leaving the home. Do we know what the science tells us?
0: Look, there's a lot of research that has talked about uh, cabin fever. So the fact that somebody is confined to their home whilst everybody else can go about their daily lives as per normal, although that's not really the case at the moment, uh, does seem to have a negative effect and does seem to create kind of a pressure cooker situation within one's home. So that's kind of what the research says, but this is such an unknown Experience, um, you know, where we are all under restrictions of movement or limited movement restrictions. That, you know, this is kind of a whole new ball game. We just wait to see what will happen and what the effects will be.
1: Now, this technology. I mean, so far we've been talking about, uh, you know, people flying into the country or returning to a country, and uh, also uh, as a punitive measure for people who breach quarantine. But this technology can and is being used for other purposes. Uh, The Port of Antwerp in Belgium has apparently issued wristbands to all its employees so they can enforce social distancing. Uh, So so it can have workplace applications.
0: You're absolutely right. And that is just a fascinating application of the technology. And it's really kind of saying you want to do the right thing, do you want to stay safe? If the answer is yes, then you wear the technology and it kind of would beep or send a signal as soon as one is not adhering to social distancing. So, it is, do you want to do the right thing? Yes, you do. Well, then then this is how you can do it. Uh, But in saying that as well, this also collects a lot of personal information. And I think that's always something we've got to keep at the back of our mind, that if we as a society, as a country, as a jurisdiction, go down the track of using technology for this purpose... We've got to think about there is a lot of information, personal information being collected. Yes, right now it's for the right reasons, one can argue, but in the future we can never be so sure what those reasons are going to be uh, that, are gonna, that could potentially be used by the governments to control our movements.
1: Dr Marietta Mantinovic, thank you. Thank you for speaking to the Law Report.
0: Thank you very much, Damien. My pleasure.
1: Dr. Marietta Martinovic, Senior Lecturer in Criminology and Justice at RMIT. You're listening to The Law Report on Radio National and, of course, available also as a podcast. How, how, on Monday, pro-democracy Hong Kong publisher Jimmy Lai was arrested under draconian new national security laws. But Hong Kong is not the only place in Asia where the media is under pressure. As Malaysia battles to contain the COVID-19 virus, authorities have been carrying out military-style operations across the capital, Kuala Lumpur. In the name of public health and safety, they've rounded up illegal foreign workers. Last week in Kuala Lumpur, the officers of Al Jazeera were raided by police because the government objected to this negative report by Australian journalist Drew Ambrose, a report which focused on the treatment of undocumented foreign workers. It's just the latest in a series of government responses to criticism that have many concerned for media freedom in Malaysia. Wachala Naidu is the Executive Director of the Centre for Independent Journalism in Kuala Lumpur.
2: The raid last week at the Kuala Lumpur office of the Al Jazeera uh, Broadcasting House basically was a follow up from uh, a series of incidences which has actually been taking place here in Malaysia since Al Jazeera's documentary called The Locked Up in Malaysia's Lockdown, which basically was um, rather critical of the government's alleged mistreatment of migrant workers during our movement control order. That was um, basically imposed to curb COVID 19. What happened at that point was there was a huge outcry against the documentary, and many Malaysian um, authorities or state leaders had alleged that it's inaccurate and misleading the way it had depicted Malaysia's alleged mistreatment. There were, of course, um, as an immediate action, what they had done is called the, a, a number of Al Jazeera personnel to, for investigation. So they were called in to our police headquarters.
1: And I should point out that five of these six Al Jazeera journalists who were called in for questioning are, are, are actually Australian nationals.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Two of the Australian staff's uh, visas are being rejected. And they were actually up for work permits, which were up for renewal.
1: So, they'll have to leave the country shortly.
2: Yeah, basically. And they're both um, Australian journalists.
1: So, they they were hauled in for questioning, and and that was, I think, a week or so ago. And and, uh, then we've just seen last week the raiding of the office and the seizing of computers.
2: Yes. What
1: charges could these journalists face?
2: So there are uh, a number of possible charges because it could be for uh, mainly for sedation and defamatory remarks. There, however, because it's an ongoing investigation, there has not been any char- uh, immediate charges yet. The only charge that has been made was Somewhat not directly related to the documentary, but against uh, one of the informants, and he—he he was basically—he's uh, being held now under immigration charges. He was a um, documented migrant worker uh, who had to go into hiding. However, he was still apprehended and now being detained in a in an immigration detention centre, and likely to be deported upon completion of the investigation. In fact, they had announced that he will probably be deported on the 31st of August.
1: They are not respecting us as a woman. I learn here. We have, our foreigners have a value just like a dog only. Malaysia's economy depends on 2.2 million migrant workers, but it's estimated another 4 million are here illegally, taking the dirty, dangerous jobs Few locals want. This was somebody who appeared in the documentary and was somebody who had had documentation but now seems to have fallen foul of the authorities. Yes. Now, of course, these issues exist in many countries, including Australia. We have had raids on the ABC and we've also had a raid on Mm -hmm. a home of a News Limited journalist. So bearing in mind that these issues happen everywhere, what do you see as the big picture here?
2: The, the If we are just narrowing it down to the raid, um, it, and it wasn't only just a raid at the Al Jazeera office in Kuala Lumpur, but also uh, raids at Astro and Unified TV, the media entities which had featured the documentary. So these raids in itself, first of all, they had taken documents and equipment. But what it really project is an, a persistent and widespread spread crackdown on media at the moment. It's interesting because Al Jazeera is an international agency. So what has happened is it has also divided the country into two positions. One, they said that the image of Malaysia is jeopardized because of the documentary. But on the other hand, people are very still very conscious and still completely against these kinds of crackdown.
1: Malaysia's COVID nineteen response has successfully contained the initial spread of the virus, but Dr. Padaw says foreigners have been unfairly blamed in the crisis. One of the impacts of COVID nineteen it brings out the best in us, in in humankind, frontline workers, etc., and people giving to charity, etc. On the other hand, it has brought out also uh, xenophobia and racism. Malaysia is not accepted uh, in this. Yeah. And they take the opportunity, of course, to then uh, use social media, especially, to uh, to take out their their prejudices. And their... The previous administration, which had come to power in 2018 with Mahathir Mohamad and Anwar Ibrahim, they had been considered much more tolerant of critical media. And indeed, I think um, in 2019. Freedom House, a democracy watchdog, had praised the country for its improved media freedom following the two thousand and nineteen mm-hmm. election. So we now have a new government. Do you mm-hmm. see what's been happening to Al Jazeera, and we'll talk about in a moment about some of the other challenges being placed upon the media, do you see that as a strategy of the new government?
2: There is definitely a pattern which is rather indicative of a deliberate and... A concerted effort by the state at silencing voices, especially uh, media, human rights defenders who are critical or dissenting or presenting an image of the government's action in an adverse light. So the moment that's been happening, there is Crackdown. We've been uh, mapping the incidences since March, and there has indeed a spike in the number of cases. So it's, it just didn't start with Al Jazeera. If we trace back, there were also incidences where South China poll, a Morning Post reporter, or journalist based in Malaysia, was also called in for questioning over her critical publication. Um, Code Blue's journalist was also called in for questioning. There are also a number of other bloggers and radio jockeys who've been called in for questioning on the on not just the reports that they had um, authored, but also in terms of their comments or posting on social media platforms. So there is indeed a spike. And this is a serious threat, really, to our right to information and freedom of expression And if this continues, then our access to free media or or right to information will really be trapped in.
1: And that South China Morning Post journalist, they had been investigating police raids on on migrant workers and refugees, similar similar to the Al Jazeera people.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it was similar. It happened uh, on May 1st where the journalist was summoned to, again uh, for questioning. However, to date, the police have actually classified the investigation as no further action. So they're not uh, continuing with the investigation.
1: Yep. And another journalist, uh, Su Lin, was being investigated for publishing the findings of an inquiry into a, to a hospital back in 2016 that led six Exactly,
2: dead. exactly. And her case is also really interesting because uh, they had initially said that she was being probed under Official Secrets Act, but then they uh, eventually made another statement to say that she's being investigated under the penal code under the and penal not code. the Official Secrets Act.
1: Ah, this is a, a very, this is a disturbingly familiar conversation <laughs> to be having.
2: Yes. Yeah. No, but it's it's almost, you know, placing us back to the previous Barisan national era, you know, where we literally function within a climate of fear every other day.
1: There is another issue which has caught your attention and and, and the attention of many other people. And that was the banning a few weeks ago of a book. Now, again, there's mm-hmm. an Australian connection here. It was edited by an Australian-based academic and, and a former BBC journalist, a very well-respected guy called Keen Wong. What is that book and, and what, why has it attracted the attention of authorities?
2: Yeah, so the the book called Rebirth, um, Reform Resistance and Hope in New Malaysia* is basically a compilation of academic um, articles talking about the post-general election fourteen incidences, you know, and it's it's a very academic discussion. Um, the the thing is, the in, the investigation was initiated after the book came under fire for its cover. The art that's been used for the cover of that particular publication allegedly insulted the national coat of arms. Yeah, what the authorities did at the end of um, June was in, again they conducted a raid and confiscated um, the the books, and then they initiated investigations under you know the Emblems and Names Act. Yeah, They initially um, initiated investigation on the basis of the book cover. That means uh, Mr. Uh, Wong, um, the editor, um, the artist and the the publisher were all called in for questioning.
1: And what what, what, what is the alleged offence here?
2: So it's basically the, the fact that the... The image that was used or the art that was used had elements uh, which incorporated our national coat of arms, what we call the jata negara, and that it seemed to be an improper use of jata negara, uh, protected item. But the the thing is, after the book was banned on the 1st of July, they then initiated continuing investigation against the, the, the contributors to the book. So then they had individuals being called in for questioning, and that is actually ongoing. So what started off as an uh, investigation based on the cover of the book has now moved on to an investigation based on the content of the book.
1: And again, there could be charges leveled with respect to the content of the book as well as the cover of the book.
2: Exactly. And it's very worrying because the charges are under very serious regressive laws as well, including the Communications and Multimedia Act and the Printing Presses and Publications Act, as well as Sedations Act.
1: Like everywhere, Malaysia is battling the COVID-19 pandemic. And and given the crisis, Mm -hmm. do issues around press freedom, are they centre stage in Malaysia or is this seen as a very peripheral issue?
2: With the, um, the current investigation against Al Jazeera, it has actually came to a prominence. There is now more people actually discussing the issues and challenging some of the government leaders in terms of, you know, what are their pledges towards media freedom. Because even before, you know, the change in government or COVID hit Malaysia or COVID hit you know, the, the world generally, the media in Malaysia were already experiencing extensive financial problems. A number of media which had to downsize, shut down, you know, stop its uh, publications and so on. So within that context, you know, within the current trend of major downsizing, and uh, instances where journalists are being retrenched or in the process of being let go, they are placed within a climate of fear because you you can't come out very strongly and oppose the actions because there is a potential threat of losing your job. So job security and economic sustainability is also creating this climate where the journalists and media outlets are not able to very openly challenge the government. This is actually, I mean, it's really highly risky because we will potentially end up with government being able um, to control the narrative because uh, their propaganda would be channeled not just through the state media, but there's a high likelihood through self-censorship or fear of being too critical the other media um, outlets may also be less critical of the government.
1: Wachala Naidu, Executive Director of the Centre for Independent Journalism in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. That's the Law Report. A big thank you to producer Anita Barrow and also to sound engineer Melissa May. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more Law.